Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Our next guest is Michael Parlante. Mike graduated from Rowan in 2002 with a bachelor's in marketing and public relations. Mike has a diverse background. He's the owner of Capsule Products, an online store supplying Invisalign patients with on-the-go product. He's also an executive VP at Mid-Atlantic Ortho, as well as a partner in MDM Holdings, where they buy and hold cash-flowing properties in southern New Jersey. Mike, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Tom, I really appreciate you having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Let's get into it. You seem to be pretty successful with the dental equipment industry, and at Blue Collar Yields, we are all about entrepreneurialism. I understand you have a product that you invented and are selling. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? The product is called the Capsule Case, and it's a all-in-one hygiene case for people that are in Invisalign treatment. And in orthodontics, the amount of patients that are beginning treatment with clear aligners, whether it's Invisalign or another system, is really becoming much more common and possibly even surpassing the traditional brackets and wires. We're talking right now in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and from talking to a lot of orthodontists in the industry, it's a lot easier for them to virtually treat patients in clear aligners versus brackets and wires too. So I would imagine that it might even have a bigger trajectory following this. But nonetheless, I've been in the ortho industry for almost 20 years, but I also was a patient that had these aligners. And it was a real big pain in the butt to wear them for 20 hours a day take them out to eat when I was on the road or in airports or in restaurants, brush my teeth and then put them back in. And the idea for the case came to me to create a real sleek, small, easy carrying case that doubled as your retainer case to put the aligners in as well as something to hold a travel toothbrush and toothpaste. And that's the idea. I can go through the process of how we went about getting this made but we've been selling this now since 2015. I licensed it to the company that I was working for, and they sold it directly to orthodontists and dentists. And most recently, we have created an Amazon store and have been very successful on selling this globally to patients that are in Invisalign direct on Amazon. So this podcast, we also focus on real estate, How did you first get into real estate? I was early 20s. The first property that I purchased was with my now wife before we were married, and it was a condo that I knew we wanted to live in for a period of time, fix up and make it nicer, and then eventually move into a house while keeping that and renting it out. And that's what we did. We're pretty successful at it back in the early 2000s. But 
I've really had some friends that were doing some big things in real estate and I was very motivated to do it. I was very motivated by all of the benefits that come from real estate. I found it very tangible and I teamed up with a couple friends and we purchased a property in Burlington County, New Jersey. This particular property was probably the worst investment that I have ever made in regards to the lack of appreciation. There has been very little appreciation in the last 11 or 12 years since we have held the property. There's been very little increase in rent. Luckily, we've had the same existing tenants that are in there, but it is like one of those things that we got in, we did it. We learned the processes. We learned how to deal with all the zoning and code officials in that particular town. And we got over the hump in our fears of purchasing property and renting it out and made probably a bunch of mistakes along the way. But that was our first step into buying holds. And we've been doing that for the last 11 years. So you still own all of the properties that you purchased? Uh, I've sold two over the years. I sold that first condo that my wife and I lived in and we sold another one. But for everything else, yes, we've held on to absolutely everything. You know, I actively own and operate almost 10 properties. And then some of them range from six units to one. I also passively invest in larger projects with different operators that I know and trust. So you said you made a lot of mistakes. What lessons did you learn from the first property that factor into your purchasing decisions today? That particular property was a quote-unquote turnkey. So we were buying it from somebody that had already rehabbed it. uh, And we were buying it with some existing tenants. And that can be a plus in regards to not much labor involvement and not as much coordination of work, but there's no real ability to increase value and add value to that particular property and push the appreciation up when you do it that way. The second thing was just identifying that market that was desirable. We picked this particular town because we knew somebody that was up there and There was a new rail line that went through that town. But other than that, there really wasn't a lot of migration to that particular area. The school districts weren't great. And it just really wasn't the best market to invest in. So two of those things, I think, were probably the biggest mistakes with the selection of the market, as well as not buying it in a condition or undervalued enough that where it could really push appreciation. So it's like a double whammy there. Not only weren't able to push appreciation up by any means, but also it was a market that we bought in 2007 when right before the crash that wasn't a desirable or an area that was performing well and still today has not really improved much in the the last decade. So you mentioned that you wish you were in a better neighborhood. Is there a neighborhood that you started to focus in on? Yeah. So following that, we live in South Jersey. I went to Rowan University 
And I lived directly next door from the town where Rowan University is located. Rowan University happened to have a new president. They were really expanding and developing many more programs, graduate programs, building their entrepreneurial and innovation center, their engineering school. They developed a pre-med program. So there was a lot of growth in that particular town. So we happened to take a shot at a property that was not nearly as close to the university as we have probably would have liked, but we got the property from HUD in a HUD sale at a very, very favorable price. Back when we had some more time, we did a lot of the work ourselves. I would say the first couple days of posting an ad, you know, this was actually back when you posted ads and put a sign out on the lawn. Yep. We had students that were looking to rent that property. And so I noticed that if it was a family versus a student, what the students were accustomed to paying versus what a family was accustomed to paying for a single family home in that particular town was different. And it highly favored the students, meaning that it highly favored us to rent the students because they were used to and accustomed to paying more to live off campus. Well, you're saying like the students are used to paying five to $600 a bedroom, where for mm-hmm. a family that might not work. Absolutely. Right. So we recognized that there was a demand there. And we followed that up over the next couple of years because I have one partner and our, my partner and I both work full time, both have families. We didn't go into a buying frenzy, but we bought maybe a property a year for five years and did very well. Quickly identified the streets that were closest and most desirable, really marketed to owners, but also were really in tune when things went for sale. And although it was competitive, we were able to get our hands on properties that were on great streets, but also had the square footage that we could add bedrooms or living space to, which equals additional rent because students want their own living space, their own bedrooms. And we have five properties there now. So you mentioned when you first started doing this, you would put up signs and post ads. I'd assume that's changed. And how are you guys keeping up with the times? I credit my partner really keeping up with things. Well, one, yes, we absolutely started to use things like Facebook Marketplace. We started to use Zillow and everything else that you would use to attract new tenants. And it's really competitive where we have discontinued even purchasing there. There's a lot of building that's going on and the market got out of of control. We no longer purchase in that particular town, but we still have these rentals and we still need to have them occupied year after year. And I know a lot of landlords that have struggled to continuously get their leases turned over before the beginning of the school year. And my partner did a really creative thing. He started to get into the particular groups, the Facebook groups that the students were in and using Instagram, because that's where a lot of the younger kids are. And using those platforms, he was able to kind of infiltrate and get our properties in front of them and also link other students up that were possibly looking for roommates. So being creative, using some of those platforms, 
using some of the sites that they were on has allowed us to really always have these things occupied and fully rented year after year. And how how else are you using technology? I understand that uh, used to get mailed checks most likely back in the day. Has that changed as well? Without a doubt. Yeah, I would say that we probably currently only receive out of 40 tenants, probably two, three checks. And we even have the ability for them to pay and have given them lessons on how to pay without having to send those checks, but they're just very comfortable doing it that way. So yes, we use two different property management softwares. We use Building and we use Appfolio. Both allow the residents to make their payments online. In other instances, we've used Venmo or PayPal. There's one other one. Is it Cash? Cash App. Yes. But for the most part, we use the payment portal through Appfolio. And for some of our tenants that even say they don't have bank accounts, we've even walked them through the steps where they can find a local CBS or a local 7-Eleven and use the barcode that the property management software provides them and make their payments there. So streamlining those processes obviously makes it so much easier to collect payments, track payments. Um, but even just the maintenance and the managing of properties is so much easier through these systems by using the vendor tickets, by having everybody, if they have something that's wrong with their particular unit, they can put these quick maintenance tickets in. It protects them and it protects us. It protects them from the tracking of actually putting a complaint in so they can say, I did this, I told my landlords about it. And it helps us to also funnel and organize what needs to be done and quickly identify the trade or the vendor that needs to be contacted. You know, right now, Tom, because of this issue that we're all in, everybody is affected by this, every single industry, every single business. We recognize that because everybody is out of work for the most part, or they might be furloughed, or their business is impacted, we have to be very flexible with collecting rents. And what we did is we were very proactive with reaching out and letting the tenants know that this is unique, this is unprecedented. However, please know that you're not going to have to worry about having a roof over your head. At the same time, if you are going to have any issues paying your rent, you have to notify us so that we can work something out. And we did this through letters through our property management software. Now, we've been instructed, too, that everything has to be documented. So if somebody is going to say to us, I filed for unemployment, I'm waiting to hear back from the state, I should be getting some sort of stimulus check. I can give you this. You know, we can't just depend on them saying it. What we are essentially doing are lease modifications. So we have to quickly document and agree that, okay, we are going to accept $500 now. And then at the end of the month, you'll be willing to pay the remainder of April because you'll be receiving unemployment or you'll be receiving your stimulus check or whatever it may be. And we'll revisit in May, but we're essentially documenting this and putting in a lease modification so that 
they're protected and we're protected because we still have utilities. We still have taxes. We still have mortgage payments that we have to make. And we do know that people are hurting out there. So we have to be incredibly flexible if we're going to go to our banks and also ask for any kind of deferred payments or forbearance, we have to have documentation as well. And on the other end, if people are just taking advantage of this situation and saying, well, I'm hearing from the governor or I'm hearing on the news that you don't need to pay rent because we're in the middle of a crisis. Well, we just can't have that. And if we show that we're doing everything we can to help our residents, but we're being taken advantage of, at least we have the right when this all is settled to move on from these particular residents if they're not paying us what we're owed. Yeah, exactly. I was listening to one of the CEOs talk of a publicly traded REIT. And to your point, he said, we'll work with people, but don't take advantage. He said, you know, I have tenants in a mall, we'll say. These guys are big time. They're publicly traded. Probably see a couple billion. And he goes, the tenant that's a small business, they might be in some trouble. And we understand that. But he goes, I got law firms. They're charging excess of a thousand an hour and they're trying to get out of paying their rent. He's like, no shot. To your point, that's what he was saying. You know, we have to be smart about who we're going to work with and how we're going to work with on this because all of a sudden you can't go from making a thousand an hour an associate to next month not being able to pay the rent just because the governor or whoever the CARE Act got signed. Absolutely. This is absolutely a case study for everybody right now. And it's changing every single day. At the same time, it does feel like Groundhog Day every single day as well. But there's communication is key. Uh, technology helps us all with really communicating effectively and organizing, keeping track of all that communication. So we're using it to hopefully its full stability at this point and, and going forward will continue to. It's really interesting, really interesting to see how this is all unraveling. And I'm really happy that we've had some of these systems in place beforehand so that we're not running around and don't have any processes that we can rely on. Have you been in contact with the banks that have loaned you me that hold the note or the mortgage? I have. We have not at this point decided to do anything. And the main reason, Tom, is because we've collected, let's just say, 85% of the rent. And we really have a good handle on when we'll be receiving the rest. So we plan on it. I really wanted to see what the rest of the month looks like if we are getting tenants telling us the second half of the month that May is going to be a problem. So I really want to know what we're asking for. I wonder how the private notes are playing out during all of this. Well, we have some of those as well. We've actually made and we have a private lender on a couple properties. We haven't had any discussions. That would probably be the last lender that we would ever go to because we want to let them know that we have been responsible with cash preservation, with reserves, that we're not in a jam 
immediately and that we're worthy of them lending us money down the road again. These banks now are pretty much regulated and they're told what they need to do for us. And I don't think there would be any red flag on our record if we need to modify or defer or ask for some sort of forbearance. So we would have to really be in a position to ever even suggest to our private lender or lenders that we were looking to modify or defer. So before this, we were talking about Rowan and Glassboro. Are there any other neighborhoods that you've invested in? Yeah, so most recently, within the last year, we've invested on the border of Ventnor in Atlantic City, New Jersey, towards the beach, towards another university. We purchased a six-unit, and we have a four-unit under contract within a couple blocks of each other. Atlantic City, for any of the listeners that are familiar with it, I'm sure everybody's familiar with it, but if you've been through Atlantic City, you know that there's the casinos and then there's like the rest of Atlantic City. And I think that really the casinos have done a poor job up until recently, but they did a poor job of doing anything for that particular city. And it's got a lot of hope and promise. And there's some awesome neighborhoods. I think it's a long game and Pun intended, it's a bit of a gamble, but we're buying at really good prices. There are beautiful homes on our street, and there are also crappy homes on our street. But we're close enough to the beach. I really think that there's so few neighborhoods that where you can get prices like this that are on the beach or beach block. So it's worth it for us to try. It's close to us. And I think they have a lot of good things going for it. They're obviously crushed by this because the casinos are shut down, the restaurants are shut down, the hotels are shut down. And how far into the summer does that extend? We'll see. So we're obviously keeping a close eye on that to see how how much we're impacted by that. But we're fully expecting to be impacted for sure. Any other towns besides Atlantic City? And Gloucester City. We've purchased uh, in Gloucester City right along. Again, it's a neighborhood that we think is completely undervalued. It is surrounded by other towns that sort of have been gentrified to an extent, like Collingswood, Haddon Township. It's literally a stone's throw from Philadelphia, and it has a ton of potential. The cap rates are great. It's got some really good programs for the schools. Uh, I believe that their school systems, at least elementary and middle, are decent and pretty good. And I know that they have some awesome programs for special services and special needs. So for families, it's really nice. It's a nice town. It's a safe town. It's close to transportation. It's close to Philadelphia. Camden, which is directly next door, is not necessarily great for living, but there is a lot of money that's being put into the city to create jobs from Holtec to American Water to Subaru, putting their headquarters there, the Sixers practice facility there. So I think it's a great town and it's completely undervalued. And we've been very happy with the properties there and our residents. 
So what hidden values do you see when you're looking at properties? You know, we want to see where there is enough square footage that there'd be the potential to add another bed and bathroom. Parking is absolutely important if we can get properties with adequate parking. And we really look for properties that need to be renovated. And they have to be at a discounted enough price. You know, sometimes if you buy a property, sort of like the one that we bought in Burlington, where not much really needed to be done, well, it's going to be hard to get that property at a price where it is undervalued enough and you can do the renovations that after you do the renovations, you go to the bank and the ARV is enough for you to combine those mortgages. I mean, that's what we're essentially doing, Tom. We're doing the Burr strategy. We're buying it, we're renovating it, we're renting it out, we're refinancing it, and we're repeating it. I love hardwood floors because you can really refinish hardwood floors and make them look spectacular for a great price. I love opening up walls. If it's a full renovation, we'll make the property a smart property with putting USB outlets in, the right lighting. We do a good job with all of our vendors and getting great high quality, either granite or quartz countertops in there, stainless steel appliances, buying the products and the supplies correctly, having the right guys putting them in and buying it for the right price is really the key to being able to to repeat the process over and over again. Yeah. I talked to our mutual friend, Rich Laletta, and he said, that's the important part is to know how much everything cost you to install. So when you're looking at a project, you could do a quick back of the envelope calculation to try to figure out if it's worth pursuing further. Let's shift over to Lexington. You invested directly in so many properties. Why did you decide to passively invest in this deal? I live in all four quadrants of the cash flow quadrant. And I'm also a husband and father of two boys. So there's only so much I can do. And I have a great W-2 job where I'm the director of business development still in the orthodontic industry. But I love real estate investing because of all of the awesome benefits from cash flow monthly to the tax benefits, depreciation, the ability to appreciate that asset over time, as well as get tax benefits now. It's just a great asset. I would highly suggest to everybody that they invest in real estate. But it takes a lot to identify properties. It takes a lot to underwrite and be in markets. I've tried many of times to go outside my lanes and explore different assets. And I haven't been successful. And I think because you have, there's so many people that are doing it full time. So, you know, I'm friends with Matt Faircloth. I knew him from meetups and masterminds we did together. And he clearly did a good job of marketing himself early on. And he puts himself out there. And he's a great resource. And he also is a great operator. So there's plenty of syndicators that I could invest passively with. But I at least have a relationship with Matt. I like the way he does business. It's easy for me to get on the phone with them and talk to them. So I did invest with him over the last year in his 
Lexington project, which was a 222-unit apartment complex in Lexington, Kentucky. And I get checks quarterly, and I get updates quarterly. And just like anything else, they share the good, the bad, and the ugly, whether they're switching property managers because the first ones didn't do a great job to how they're handling the coronavirus crisis. So I would do it again. I do ultimately want to invest in bigger projects on the GP side myself. But in the meantime, I have no problem passively investing in projects where I know, like, and trust the operators. So Mike, day to day, what fuels you? I really want to make my family proud. I also want to be able to constantly learn and invest in myself so that I feel fulfilled. I like creating things. For instance, right now with my work, we have a schoolhouse in my house basically right now because my kids are home indefinitely. So I'm in my room quarantined myself so that I can actually do all this stuff. It's giving us time to create new products and launch new products for the summer when we know or at least are hopeful that things will be resumed and we can effectively launch. But it's it's exciting. So I like to build and create things, whether it's in my W-2 job or if it's in real estate or if it's on Amazon, I'd be looking to add products to that product line. So at the end of the day, I'd like the fact that I'm able to take care of my family. I like the different forms of revenue and cash flow that I'm able to get. This particular crisis is affecting us, but at least I have these different forms of revenue streams that at least let me know, okay, well, guess what? If my industry is decimated and I'm laid off, I have this. Or if my rentals aren't producing the amount of income for the next three or four months because people are having a tough time paying, I have that. I think it's always smart to have and build those additional revenue streams at an early age so that you're insulated and protected and diversified enough to get through any sort of crisis. You know, having said that, I am guilty of being jack of all trades, but master of none. And I've even felt that way probably more this year than others. So I do want to revisit how I am spending my time and investing my time. And I haven't figured it out, Tom, yet, like what would be next, but I am thinking about other projects and the type of investments that I want to do, not necessarily passively, but what I want to actively do. I don't think I can continue to just do smaller single family homes. I think I'd want to do things that are a little bit more exciting, more challenging. They need more involvement, but they also need more input to make them spectacular, whatever that may be. So I'm going to be revisiting projects in the next year, what I like to to actually invest in. Mike, outside of real estate and dental sales, you briefly touched on this, but has something else caught your attention recently? Yeah. So there's two organizations that I've been working with for about five or six years. Ronald McDonald House is something that we've either worked with as raising money for volunteering at their facility. And I did that because actually our one son 
that does have some health issues was traveling back and forth to Chicago and for a procedure every three months. And somebody mentioned to us, hey, you should stay in this Ronald McDonald house instead of checking into a hotel. And it was an awesome organization. We felt a debt of gratitude to them. So we have worked with that organization. They're awesome that have children that have extended stays in hospitals. So I love that. The second organization is Hope Smiles. And Hope Smiles, they set up dental clinics in impoverished areas of the world, particularly in Haiti. And we first started as a company that donated products to them because I had friends that were doctors, orthodontists that would go and donate their time for a week or two. So we started to donate some products to them and that's going on for four years, but we're now helping them spread the word and get more doctors on board. We recently did a presentation with them together in Las Vegas to a group of a hundred in an effort to really help that particular organization that does so much good in just areas of the world where dental is not necessarily a high priority. So they may have access to some healthcare, but a lot of them don't have any access to any kind of dental care. And really, if you let oral health just go by the wayside, there are a lot of overall health issues that people will eventually get. So just simple cleanings and simple cavity fills are going to prevent so much pain as well as long-term issues that people may have and just live with. And it doesn't take much. I mean, it takes like $1,000 is what I remember. $1,000 actually helps treat 70 people on a routine basis. So they're doing a really good thing in a couple areas of the world. I actually plan on going to Haiti with one of the board directors. In It was scheduled for, I believe, next month, but who knows now, to check out one of their clinics. And I think it's important for anybody to kind of have these things to be working on. It really helps because we can all earn a paycheck and we can all go do your job. But at the end of the day, doing things like this, at least you feel like you're making a difference and having an impact in more than one way. So now we're going to do rapid fire questions. What was your first job? I delivered papers for the Courier Post. I want to say I was 12, 11 or 12 years old. Let's say fifth, sixth grade. I rode my bike. I would pick it up at a house. My parents would actually let me, something I would never let my kid do now. I'd actually cross a really busy street highway uh, on my bike at 11 years old and go into a different neighborhood to deliver the papers. I would also have to be responsible for collecting the money. So I'd go and knock on the people's doors after a couple of weeks of delivering papers and I would do collections and I'd have people that would dodge me, but I made tips. I would wake up early on Saturdays and Sundays and that was my first job. Did it teach you anything valuable? Was there anything you took away from that that you still use or look out for? Yeah. I went on vacation one week and I actually needed some a friend to do this for. And this was very common back then. And I remember I had my friend do it, agree to do it, and I would pay him. But my take was, and 
he didn't do it a day or two. And when I got back, everybody was pissed. And I remember them letting me know it. And he was sorry, but he was a kid. He was 12 or 13 years old. And he just didn't have the initiative or the drive. or He didn't feel responsible. And I remember thinking, you know what? The lesson was, one, these little disruptions to people do make a difference. And then two, I need to do a better job of not picking friends, but asking the right friend or relying or delegation, which is so important in any business. I delegated without giving it much thought and I paid the price. What are you reading right now? I'm reading a book called Loon Shots. And Loon Shots is interesting. It's a play off the word long shots, but Loon Shots is about a bunch of people that were wildly successful, but everybody thought they were loony and they failed a billion times before making it, but they stayed true to their convictions. One's a guy, Japanese doctor, chemist that created basically like the main statin that's used now for lowering cholesterol. And he was like laughed at and all of his clinical trials for years basically showed that it just wasn't working and pharmaceutical companies would hire and fire him. But he believed in it. He knew. He saw the results. He saw that it was working in certain cases and he just kept at it. And he failed not once, twice. You know, they called it deaths, like deaths of the project. And each of the projects died three times. But his particular work resulted in not only saving millions of lives because it's a simple drug that saves people from having heart attacks and clogged arteries, but also probably made pharmaceutical companies a half a trillion dollars. Lastly, who's your favorite person to follow on social media? I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell. He's got an awesome podcast. Our friend MC Lobster on Cashflow Ninja, great guy. He's really good at staying in his lanes, but also interviewing people from all different walks and really turning some complex theories into very comprehensible things for people to understand. I've always listened to Tim Ferriss, more so for his guests. But those three are ones that I consistently tune into. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks, Mike. Where can people get in touch with you? LinkedIn and Facebook are probably the two best places. Michael Perlante, you'll find me on each of those. I'm always available. I appreciate your show. I think you guys are doing a great job and happy to spend some time here with you today. Yeah, we're real happy to have you on. Where can people find your case? Yeah, there's a website called capsuledental.com. It's also primarily being sold on Amazon. So if you just search either Invisalign Travel Kit or All-in-One Travel Aligner Kit or Capsule Aligner Case, you'll find it easily on Amazon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.